check, check. Oh, there we go. It was on mute. Man, my congregation, they probably wish we had that power. <laughs> okay, uh, Psalm 2, if you have your Bible, uh, you can turn there. Um, I'm, I really like the new digs. It's great to be in this building. One of my favorite things about this building, you know what it is? It's this old-fashioned piece of uh, spy technology right here, this, this little mirror here. That's wonderful. <laughs> uh, no, but in all seriousness, it is an amazing thing to hear the praise of God in this place again. Um, and some of you who are more uh, attuned to the history of uh, the church in Canada will also appreciate the fact that there is worship being sung with such power and in truth and full of the Holy Spirit in this place once again. And so praise God for that. Let's read Psalm 2 together. I'll read it for you. You can follow along. Uh, if you have your Bible and you're able, I'd like you to stand as I read this, this word. This is what it says. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me... I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree of the Lord, uh, of, of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them the rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. You may be seated. Father, we thank you for this, your holy word. It is our desire that as we look to the pages of scripture that we would see Christ in this passage and having seen him that our hearts would be lifted up that we would rejoice in all that is here for us Lord we live in a time of great rage the nations rage even still and yet we are a people with incredible hope, hope that is available to all who take refuge in you. Father, we pray that if there's any here even today who has not yet beheld Jesus and taken refuge in him, that they would find him even today and take refuge and be saved. Father, I ask that you give me courage, boldness to speak, clarity of thought and mind, the ability to speak the things that are in your word. Father, we pray that we'd all be changed, that you would, you would even remove all the obstacles that might stand in the way and cause us to not hear your holy word. Father, we think of the enemy even who seeks to Devour the word before it falls even upon our ears. 
Father, we pray against him. We ask that your spirit would give us ears that hear, hearts that receive and rejoice in all that your word says. And we pray for this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bible, Psalm 2. Um, the Psalms are more than just a song book. The book of Psalms is actually an essential part of the, provides an essential part of the, the Bible's whole theological foundation. We become immediately more aware of this fact once we steep ourselves in the New Testament, where you find quotations and allusions to the Psalms. They're legion all over. They're almost found on almost every single page of the New Testament. The authors of the New Testament depended upon the book of Psalms as providing an essential underpinning without which they would not be able to understand or proclaim their faith in Jesus in the way that they did. Interestingly enough, one of the Psalms that's most quoted in the New Testament is actually Psalm 2, being rivaled only by Psalm 110. What this means is that Psalm 2 is essential to understanding the identity of Jesus Christ and what hope we have in him. You might say it like this, that we don't truly and fully understand Jesus rightly until we gaze upon him through the lens of the Psalms, until we look at him through the lens of Psalms like Psalm 1-2 we'll be doing today. Now, for centuries, many readers of the Psalms have believed that both Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 together form what we see as a kind of a prologue to the whole book of the Psalms, and that is the book of the Psalms isn't just a random collection of songs that are all just thrown in there, that there's an actual organizational motif. There's themes that pick up and they run throughout the whole and are developed throughout the whole of the book. And there's a degree of interrelatedness that holds the collection together. And the last time I was with you, we preached a sermon on Psalm 1, which outlines the, the pathway of happiness, blessedness. The blessed man is or the happy man is the one who devotes himself to the will of God as articulated in the word of God. And those who do not obey the word of the Lord, the wicked, are likened to the chaff and will not stand in the day of the judgment. There's this antithesis, a great principial clash between the blessed man and the wicked that plays out in the whole of Psalm 1. In Psalm 2, however... We're given further warning of the day of judgment as we see this clash, which in Psalm 1 existed between individuals, but in Psalm 2 is now developed into a more cosmic theme. Here, the conflict is not between individuals, but between kingdoms, the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The, the nations assail the Lord's anointed, and he is promised ultimate victory. Psalm 2 also serves as a prologue in that we're introduced to the Lord's anointed, one of the central figures of the whole book of Psalms. The central figure, in fact, of the whole Bible. In the historical setting of the psalm, the anointed is a reference to David, the anointed king of Israel. However, David himself is conscious of the fact that the psalm anticipates another. You see, David is a type who prefigures the Messiah to come, the, the ultimate son of David, who would receive an eternal kingdom. 
And the psalm forces us to look forward to a greater kingdom that rules over all the nations of the earth and a greater king who will usher in an era of blessing and peace and righteousness. What I'm saying is that Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm intended to point us to Jesus and his kingdom. And in this way, it fosters hope in us for a better day. Many of the Psalms call God's people to wait, to wait hopefully, expectantly for what is promised. Many of the Psalms do that. Psalm 2, however, helps to fill out the nature of our hope. It tells us what we're waiting for. You see, biblical hope is not just some mere abstract bit of wishful thinking. You know, kind of like how I really hope the Toronto Maple Leafs will win a Stanley Cup in my lifetime. Probably not going to happen. I'm not from Alberta. I got here as fast as I could, though. So, anyway... I still held on to my allegiance to the world's most losingest team. But you see, biblical hope is no mere abstract bit of wishful thinking, a leap in the dark. But the scriptures give us many precious and very great promises that are specific. They're, they're detailed. It's filled out more than this. In the passages like Psalm 2, the Holy Spirit, as it were, cracks open the door and allows us to glimpse, to see a glimpse of what is stored up for those whose trust is stayed upon the Lord. And so we would see Jesus in this song. We would be reminded of his kingdom. Then our hearts would be uplifted to know that despite the fact that the world that we live in is seemingly falling apart and bursting at the seams, There's hope. (laughs) And his name is Jesus. So if you're looking down at Psalm 2, you can see that if you're a person who likes to take notes, Psalm 2 is actually divided up into four stanzas. Four stanzas. It's much like each of the stanzas is much like an opera. We hear a different voice in each of these stanzas. And we'll be looking at these four stanzas. If you take a look down at... um, verses 1 to 3, we're quickly introduced to the very first voice. It's the voice of rage. Since the content of the psalm reveals the kingdom of God and the rule of Messiah, we would almost expect that at some point we would hear the voice of opposition. Well, here it is, right off the bat. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. The expression here is one of astonishment. Absolute astonishment. The proud kings of the earth, picture them. They... Oppose the Lord. Take note of the unity between the Lord and his anointed. To oppose one is to, in fact, oppose the other. When men sought the life of David or his sons, they were also setting themselves in opposition to God. For in the case of Israel, God establishes his authority on the earth through his king, you see. His rule, his blessing, his authority is all mediated through the king to the nation and then to the other nations of the earth. The word translated there, plot, is actually the same Hebrew word that is rendered meditate in the first psalm. When it talks about the blessed man meditates on the law of the Lord. However, instead of meditating on the law of the Lord, the only meditation of the wicked is how they might throw off and establish their own reckless autonomy. This is what they're after. Rage against God. Sounds pretty futile, doesn't it? But conflict is to be expected. 
The kingdom of God and all that it stands for is always and in every way. And you will know this, brothers and sisters, that the kingdom of God is always disruptive to the kingdoms of men. And where you find this disruption, there you will see men and women taking to the, the machinery of war to meet it. Several years ago, Matthew Henry reflected on this text. And he said this. We here have a very great struggle about the kingdom of Christ, hell and heaven contesting it. The seat of the war is the earth, where Satan has a long usurped kingdom and exercises dominion to such a degree that he has called the princes, he's called the prince and the power of the air, the very air that we breathe in and the God of this world we live in. He knows very well that as the Messiah's kingdom rises and gets ground, his falls and loses ground. And therefore, though it will be set up certainly, speaking of the kingdom of God, it shall not be set up tamely, says Henry. The nations still rage today, don't they? Even in our own land, Christians are continually being forced out of the public sphere. The federal government continues to advocate for a set of values that run completely contrary to the God of Scripture and everything that he stands for. Our nation calls evil good and good evil. If you think that's bad... We don't even have to mention all the atrocities enacted against our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world. You're not going to hear about that kind of thing on the media, in the news. The nations rage. Well, why do they rage? The answer to the question is found there in verse 3. They say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You see, this is a cry for human autonomy. These people see God and they see his law as something which only binds and restricts and it crushes. And God is not to be trusted. They desire Freedom from God's demands and a right to rule over themselves. And they want to be able to say for themselves what is right, what is wrong. And they'll not be held accountable to any. In a sense, this, is, this attitude is really what's at the root of all sin, isn't it? This autonomous attitude. And you know what? If you're really honest with yourself, we'd have to say that the voice of rage at times sounds quite familiar to us, doesn't it? I mean, if you consider the fact that God requires us to live at every moment for his glory, to obey him perfectly, without question, to observe everything he commands of us. And more than this, to love him with the whole of our hearts, soul, mind, strength, and to love our neighbor perfectly. There are likely countless times in an average day when something within me cries out for autonomy. My neck becomes stiffened against the Lord, and I hear the voice of rage on my own lips, even if it's just a whisper, and I say something like this, no, <laughs> no, my way. See, I, and I doubt God's goodness, the goodness of his commands, and I, I doubt whether or not I can trust him. All of these are ways that the voice of autonomy the voice of rage rings out in my own heart. 
I wonder if you maybe struggle at times to re- with regard to your view of God and his commandments. Perhaps the thought crosses your mind occasionally that God's law is somehow unreasonable, that it's not good, or that it's maybe too restrictive. Perhaps your view of God is that he's some overbearing despot in the sky. He's just sitting there intensely concerned that out there in the world, somewhere, somebody out there is having just a little bit of fun. He doesn't like that. You might be tempted to dream a little bit about what life would be like if you had it your way, if you had freedom to do it the way you wanted, unhindered by these commandments and this king who rules over you at every point. If so, you see, that presents more of a commentary on you than on God. You see, God is the one who has set up life and he's designed it in a particular way. And it is only when we live inside the boundaries of his commandments, inside the boundaries of his design, that we truly find freedom. The problem is not with God's law, but with us. The problem has never been with God's law. The problem has always been with us, with our hearts. You see, rather than these being bonds and cords that are overbearing and restrictive, the prophet Hosea describes these as cords of kindness. He speaks of them as bonds of love. You see, God's law etches out the pathway of perfect happiness. We already know this from Psalm 1. You see, this little passage gives us perspective, and it helps us to make sense out of the present moment and all the chaos, all the confusion that we witness everywhere in the world. Why is it That the world is such a wreck today. Well, somebody might say it's COVID. I'm not sure about that. See, COVID, I think, just exposes something that's there already in the hearts of men. Is it not rather that in some way related to the fact that men have Hearts that are hostile to God? Is it not due to the fact that men love darkness rather than light? You see, the biggest problem with the world today is the hearts of men. Not on, out, not on the outside. The problem, you see, is on the inside of us. You are the problem with the world today. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, Paul says. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They cannot because they will not, brothers and sisters. And if you get a whole society of people each internally hostile to what is good and externally outraged against God. Is it any wonder why the world is in the condition that it is today? I think it's more, it's really more amazing when you stop to think about it that there is any sense of order left, any beauty left, any good accomplished in the world today. But you see, these things are not present in the world today as some testimony of the inherent goodness of humanity. No, they're a witness to the restraining grace of God, whereby he preserves some measure of order on the planet so that he can move forward with his plan of redemption, saving some. This is why there's anything good left in the world. The scene now shifts. In the second stanza, in the first stanza, we hear the rage of the nations of the earth. There's a great turmoil and uproar. Next, we hear the voice of the Father. 
This is the next voice, the Father speaking from heaven. Look down at verse 4. He says, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Here we see the plots of the nations are in fact vain. When all the nations take counsel together against God and against his anointed, there really is no contest, is there? But that by no means implies that they will not continue in their resistance. All throughout history, there's been an endless stream of nations who stand in opposition to God and his authority. Now, do you think, what do you, what do you think? <laughs> do you think that the Lord is somehow sitting up in heaven, biting his nails, sitting on his hands and cowering in fear at the thought of these little kings shaking their fists? <laughs> no, absolutely not. How does the Lord respond? Well, the text says that he laughs. He laughs. Now, please understand something, though. This is not the sort of laugh that we give to something when it's hilariously funny. No. Rage against God is not hilariously funny. God doesn't find it humorous in that way. No, this is the sort of laugh that we give to something when it's absolutely ridiculous. Quite a few years ago, my wife and I, uh, Melissa, she's, anyway, I won't get into that, but my wife and I were uh, at a place that maybe some of you know, it's called, it was called the Gazoo. It was kind of like a farm with a bunch of exotic pets, <laughs> like a zoo in the middle of like Three Hills, Alberta. You know, we showed up to this place. That, that place, by the way, is now closed down, probably for good reason. Anyway. Um, and we, we, we arrived, and right after I stepped out of the vehicle, I'm immediately greeted by this little basset hound. He comes yipping up at my heels, and I look down at this dog, and I notice something very strange about him. He had all these, like, scars and nicks on his nose. <laughs> He's barking. Anyway finally found somebody else to bark at, so he left me alone. But this little dog, later on, we're walking around in this uh, zoo, I guess you could call it, and we're leaning up against this fence, and we're looking at these lions there in the enclosure this, on this yard, and all of a sudden, out of nowhere, this little basset hound just comes yipping up right, right past, right past my legs and yipping it right against the fence of the, of the enclosure for the lions. And he's like, rah, 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 barking, and then all of a sudden, this huge lion stands up from his little platform he's on. He gets up and he comes roaring against the fence, full outstretched paws and everything. And this is like right in front of my eyes. And I'm like, I think I'm, I might have, I don't remember, but I might have come close to wetting myself. This big lion is there. And this stupid dog, like people say dogs are smart. And they're probably right, there probably are some smart dogs, but this was not a smart one. So this dog is yipping at this lion as he's in full outrage. And suddenly understood why he had all the nicks on his nose. <laughs> And the lion is looking at this dog like, oh, lo- oh dog, if, you were, if, if this cage wasn't here, you would be lunch. And at this moment, I looked over at the farmer who owns this place, and he's just calmly leaning on the fence. And he looks over at this dog, and he goes, in his Alberta farmer accent, he goes, Leroy, leave them dang cats alone. <laughs> the dog just takes off. When I was reading this text, I couldn't help but think back to that moment. You see, these dogs, these kings of the earth come yipping at the heels of God. The only thing, though, is that in the case of God, there is no cage. 
to keep him in. And they are foolish indeed. The Lord not only laughs at the absurdity of the situation for a time, but he speaks to them, it says, in, in his wrath, and he terrifies them in his fury, saying, as for me, and as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The point is very subtle. You see, if, God, if it is God who places the king in Zion, who on earth can challenge him? God's act of seating the king then secures the victory because God has done it and nobody could stand and oppose it. There are some today who do not like this view of God, one who speaks and acts in wrath and fury. The thought of an angry God or a warrior like God is for many a repulsive thing. It's repulsive to our modern sensibilities, and yet it is written. There are many today, the Rob Bells of the day, the Brad Jerzaks, William Paul Youngs, Brian Zuns, Greg Boyds, Bruxy Cavi, the list could go on, who simply want to reinterpret the Bible in such a way so as to present a domesticated and a, and a sanitized view of God. The problem, however, is that modern rewrites are almost unrecognizable from the image that we are presented with here in this text. I won't spend any more time here except for to say this. When you take full stock of the evil of the world, When you look around you at all the chaos and turmoil of our world, you must conclude, you must conclude that it is good for God to be angry. You see, it is no virtue to stare dispassionately into the face of pure evil and do nothing. But God is holy. And the scriptures promise a day of justice. And it is good that they do that. The very next voice we hear is the voice of the Son. The Son, who is the anointed King. When He speaks, He actually recalls the voice of His Father. Let's listen to Him here in verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me. And I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. He's recounting the decree of the Lord, God's eternal plan that he revealed in history to David. Do you remember when David asked God if he could build for him a house? God revealed that David would not, in fact, be the man to build the house. But that his son would do it. He also turned the tables on David by basically saying this, no, 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 David, you're not going to build the house for me, speaking of a temple. Instead, no, David, I will build a house for you, speaking of a dynasty. God promised that the throne of David would be established forever. Now you can interpret this in either two, one of two ways. Either for as long as forever lasts, God will preserve somebody on, from David's line on the throne, and when he dies, God will just bring another Davidite and put him on the throne, and when he dies, another, and then another, and another, all throughout history. Or, perhaps, Maybe somebody from David's line will just come and sit on the throne and reign forever. And if you read the prophets and you read on into the New Testament, you begin to see that that is in fact exactly how this thing unravels. Not only will the throne be forever, but God promises a special relationship with the king. There's a special relationship with the king. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 14, God says, I will be to him a father. 
and he shall be to me a son. The logic implies that every son of David, upon being seated on the throne, could be called the son of God. It's almost like being adopted in a sense, you could say. So, so back in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, when we read, You are my son, today I have begotten you. We are meant to reflect upon the coronation of this king. That is, the moment he is seated on the throne. Today, you are my son. Applying this to Christ, however, can be somewhat confusing. When does the begetting take place? When, when is this son of David, when is the Messiah begotten? And some would say that this is referring to the begetting of the son from all of eternity. What theologians call the eternal generation of the son. That the son is eternally begotten of the father, eternally proceeds from the father. I'm not sure that that's what the text means here. That's not to say that the Son is not eternally begotten from the Father, that the Son somehow eternally uh, becomes the Son at some point later on in history. That is actually the heresy of adoptionism. Instead, what I think is happening is that this text, in this text, that God, the eternal Son, becomes... So God is, he's the eternal son, the second person of the Trinity, becomes the son of God in another sense in history, though he always was the son from all of eternity. Does that make sense? Probably not. The the son was always the son from all of eternity, and yet in another sense, he becomes the son of God in history according to his humanity as the son of God. David. But when was it? When was it? If you turn to Acts chapter 13 verses 32 to 33, Paul is speaking to a group of Jews on his first missionary journey and he wants these people to know that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Listen to what he says. He says this, and we bring you the good news That what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You see, Paul understands this declaration. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. To belong to Jesus upon his resurrection, after which he is ascended and seated on the heavenly throne. So along with the title, the Messiah is given authority then over all the nations of the world. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Now if we were speaking of the Son according to his divinity, there would be no need for him to ask for the nations. They already belong to him because he is God. However, his authority over the nations, according to his humanity, as the ultimate son of David, is what he is entitled to for all of his suffering. Do you see it, brothers and sisters? He purchased this authority with the price of his own blood, and God has seated him in heaven. Now think about the Great Commission. What does Jesus say? All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. So go to the nations and bring them to me. The authority to call the nations to faith and obedience is given to Christ when he's seated in heaven and is the just reward for all of his suffering. This is what was promised way back in Genesis 49, verse 10. The scepter 
shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and he shall be, and to him shall be all the obedience, the obedience of all the peoples, all the nations of the earth. See, the authority granted here, however, is not the authority to save, though that is belongs to Christ. It, it is the authority, rather, to judge all of his enemies, as, in, as we read in verse 9. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. This coming day of judgment is an integral part of Paul's Gospel. Listen to the way that Paul preaches the gospel to the philosophers in Athens. He says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people, all nations, everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. A judgment that he will enact, brothers and sisters, on the last day as we read. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. The name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. For from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. See, that's a reference to Psalm 2. And he will tread the winepress of the fury, the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. You see, do you have any idea who you are messing with when you stand in opposition to this king? When you stiffen your neck and you say, no, my way. Look at this king and all of his beauty. Now, what significance do these things have for us today? Well, who the better to tell us, but the fourth voice in the song, the voice of reason, the voice of reason, the voice of reason pleads with us, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Here are four reasons, four reasons that I've taken out of the last stanza as to why it is good for us to hear the message of Psalm 2. Four reasons, really quickly. First, we need to hear Psalm 2 because it is good for our warning. This God, who will speak in wrath and terrify men in his fury, here makes a gracious summons, a gentle plea. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Today, he stretches out his hands to a rebellious people, and he calls them to apply the wisdom of the gospel. Many evangelicals today shy away from mentioning the coming day of wrath in their books and in their sermons because they care far too much about their appearance. They want to present an image of a more loving view of God. Well, here is love. This love warns men of damnation and pleads with them to receive his mercy. It is not loving to be silent in the face of impending doom. And the blood, brothers and sisters, listen, the blood of thousands stains the hands of many a preacher who is far too concerned about his self-image and filling his pews to give the warning. Secondly, it is good for us to hear Psalm 2 because it is good for our worship. 
The voice of reason calls for men to serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. See, instead of thinking that we are somehow the center of the universe, we must truly seek the one who is. All of creation, all of history, is in fact leading to the exaltation of the Son of God in His kingdom. This is where it's all going. And once we see this great end, we will be driven to serve the Son and to treasure Him that he is. Also, our exalted view of Christ will season our worship with deep feelings of happy joy matched with reverent fear. Deep feelings of happy joy, brothers and sisters, matched with reverent fear. Authentic Christian worship is not skippy It's not hokey. It's not casual. It's also not a dirge. No, it is filled with joy, intermingled with trembling before this holy God. Third, it is good for us to hear Psalm 2 because it is good for our work. The voice cries out, kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. This is the call of the evangelist. To kiss the sun is the call, is to call men to gaze upon the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ and to call them to embrace him. Psalm 2 sharpens the content of the gospel but it also evokes urgency in our work. There's urgency, a sense of urgency that pervades all of our work here in this world. The ESV uses the word quickly to speak of his wrath. But in light of the Bible's many claims that God is slow to anger, I think it might be better translated, better to translate the word suddenly or soon. We do not know when the day of judgment will come. We must not be presumptuous in thinking that we have all the time in the world to preach the gospel. No. We're not promised all the time in the world to preach the gospel. We're promised today, and so we preach the gospel today. The pervading sense of urgency that fills all of our work in the gospel Fourthly and finally, it is good for our worry. Psalm 1 opens up with the word blessed, and Psalm 2 closes with the word blessed. In Psalm 1, the happy individual is the one who meditates on the word and obeys it, and there is much happiness and obedience. However, in Psalm 2, the happy man is the one who takes refuge in the Son of God, and he banks all of his trust on him. Trust and obey, for there is no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. 2,000 years ago, when persecution broke out amongst the first Christians there in Jerusalem, the rage of the nations threatened to drown out the hope of the gospel. They feasted in that moment. They gathered together, brothers and sisters. They prayed and they feasted on Psalm 2. You can read about it in Acts 4. This is what it says. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. And they said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Who, through the mouth of our father David, who your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? You see, that's Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, that is the city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, 
whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Brothers and sisters, listen. They believed that their present experience of persecution was part of the same process of rage that put Jesus to death, even as it is for us. And because God is sovereign over all of this, it gave them confidence that no matter how loud the noise of the world got, the Lord has in fact seated His King on Zion. The day of victory is secured for all who take refuge in Him. We live in noisy times. The nations rage all about us. And it'd be tempting for us to almost think that God has forgotten us, that He doesn't understand, He doesn't know about it. He knows all about it. Despite the fact that the nations raised, brothers and sisters, He has seated Christ on the throne. And though we live, like I said, in very noisy times. Our confidence is in the risen sun. And this casts out our worry and it gives us boldness in our proclamation. For where there is rage in Christ, there is also great refuge. Let's pray together. Father, we give you praise.